Father, I thank you for the Communitas family. I thank you that you are here. I thank you that you are pleased to be here, that you delight in the worship you receive here, that you inspire your children here, and you equip us here. And there are people who are not here who we want to reach. Would you help us to be more effective at reaching them? And would you help us tonight to be thoughtful about how we will address situations of conflict? Please use me to communicate what you want me to communicate in the way you want it communicated. And may, may the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit receive all of the glory and all of the honor. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. My name is Kevin McClure. I've uh, been a pastor for 30 years. Uh, been a father for many years, 27 years, have four children, two of them are here, thrilled with that, and uh, been married for 33 years, and that's been good. And I, I learned a long time ago, some of you are familiar with this statement by Rick Warren, that the grass isn't greener on the other side of the hill, it's greener where you water it. And for that reason, my wife and I have dated each other every week for 33 years. And I made that statement once, and somebody came up to her and said, your, your husband has to be exaggerating. And she said, is that the truth? And Laura said, it is. We've probably missed five dates in 33 years, and we usually make them up. Now, I don't say that to congratulate myself. I, I say it simply to offer some encouragement that marriage isn't maintenance-free, and neither is your relationship with Jesus. So, we're talking about conflict. I used to call this seminar... Resolving conflict, I no, I no longer call it that, because sometimes the best we can do is to manage conflict. And I get to present this seminar in secular settings and also at churches and uh, with smaller groups too. But the way I'm going to present this tonight will be a little bit different, because we're going to look up a bunch of Bible verses, and rather than have everyone look up these Bible verses, which, by the way, will provide a context and a background for what we're going to talk about I'd like volunteers who don't mind reading. So who'd like to look up Romans 8, or excuse me, 12:18? Anybody? Okay, right there. And then Matthew 5, 21 to 24, and then verse 44. Go right ahead. And then Matthew 18, 15 to 18. Anybody want to grab that one? Go for it. And then John 7, 24. Okay. And uh, Luke 17, 3. Who's got that one? Okay, would you, when you read, would you introduce yourself? Yeah. Okay. And then uh, James 5, 19 and 20. Anybody want to read those? Go for, the, for that. Uh, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Anybody? Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Who's got it? Okay. And then one final verse, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Sure. You got it, Eric? Okay. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Luke is uh, 17.3. So, go ahead. Romans 12.18. Who's got that? Go ahead. There's Jackie Parker. Great. And 18 is, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Okay. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. And one, and one version says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Okay, Matthew 5. Thank you, Jackie. 21 to... 24, and then verse 44. Who's got Matthew 5? Go uh, my name's Clint. Clint. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause 
shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, or you empty head, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And verse 44... Yes. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Okay. Just, just think. Thank you, Clint. Think about that. You can love your enemies. And when the Bible talks about loving people, almost always it's not talking about how you feel about someone. It's talking about how you behave towards someone. If you think about 1 Corinthians 13, what we call the love chapter... It says love is patient, right? It doesn't say love feels patient. Love is kind. Love holds no record of wrong, wrongs, which means love forgives. So this is talking about how love behaves. So you can behave lovingly with regard to someone you don't like. And I want to tell you tonight that it's okay not to like some people. There are some people that are very mean, that are not even safe to be around, in fact, not liking them may be a way for you to protect yourself. Because you can't always control how you feel about someone. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, you can control how you behave toward that person. And think about the other passage that Clint read where it said, if you're at the altar offering your gift, and there you're, you remember that your brother has, the King James says, ought against you. Or, in other words, you remember that you have sinned against your brother. In other words, you just haven't, it's not a matter of, I, you, you irritated your brother. Your brother actually has a legitimate claim against you. What are you supposed to do with your gift that you're offering to God? Leave it there. First, go re be reconciled with your brother. Why is that? Because God says the way we relate to others is a reflection of the way we actually relate to Him. We tend to think we really feel good about God. It's those people out there we have trouble with. But if you read 1 John, it says you, you really can't truthfully say you're walking in love with God when you're not walking in love with your brothers. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so what's uh, Matthew 18, 15 to 18 say? Uh, my name is Dane. Thank you, Dane. <clears throat> Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Thank you. So, when someone sins against you, there's an action you're supposed to take. And again, this is a situation where Jesus is saying someone has actually sinned against you and that requires that you go to that person, just the two of you. Why? Because sin, sin injures people. Sin always does three things. It always does three things. It always dishonors God. It always injures the person who is sinning and usually there's some collateral damage. It usually injures some others. And thirdly, it opens a door of opportunity to the enemy. It's like giving the devil a key to your house. So we're, we're warned when, when someone sins against us, we need to address that issue if, in fact, we truly care about this brother or this sister who sinned against us. Our love 
would motivate us to go to them because we care about what sin is doing to them. And then if, if we aren't able to win our brother, if they're not responsive to us, we're to take two or three others with us, correct? And if they don't listen to them, we're supposed to go to the church. Now, in the language of our culture today in the 21st century, we would call this performing an intervention. Have you ever been a part of an intervention or, or heard of an intervention where someone's chemically dependent and maybe members of the family and close friends get together and say, Bill, you've, you've really got a problem with alcohol and here's how it's hurting me. And each member of the family gets to talk to Bill. And that's the idea behind this. The idea is not to beat this person up, this sinning person up. It's to help this person realize the gravity of, sins, of his sin so he can be free of, of his sin. Okay, what's John uh, 7.24 say? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Okay, thank you. Stop judging by mere appearances, but make a right judgment. You know, the verse that every non-Christian in America has memorized is Matthew 7.1. Judge not, lest you be judged. But if you're familiar with all of the context, you read the five first five verses of Matthew chapter 7, what you're going to find out is Jesus is specifically talking to hypocrites. He's talking to people who don't walk their talk. These are people who have big logs in their eye, and they're guilty of the very things that they're holding other people accountable for. And he said, first look at the log in your eye, then you'll be capable to help someone else with the, the smaller issue, the, the, uh, the splinter in their eye. So I, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to the subject of judgment in the body of Christ. A lot of times... If you hold someone accountable, in other words, someone is actually sinning, and you're talking to them because, again, you're motivated by love to talk to them so that they can find freedom from the thing that, that binds them, a lot of times you'll hear people say, you're judging me. And, uh, in fact, just today I w had a conversation with a person who's a member of my church who's been pretty naughty and uh, chronically, willfully disobedient to the Scripture. And she said, you're judging me. I said, of course I'm judging you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13 says, we're to judge those inside the church. We're not to judge those outside the church. And yet, as far as I'm concerned, I see a lot of judgment by Christians of non-Christians. And a lot of not judging Christians when we need to. We need to understand why we should judge Christians. I want to read to you a quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He said, nothing can be more cruel. And again, if you want this shoot me an email, or have Paul or somebody send me an email, and I'll shoot all this stuff, the full-blown notes to you. Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Does, does that make sense? I'll tell you, sometimes if you are a person who cares enough to have a conversation with a person who's sinning willfully and chronically, you will be often paying a terrible price for doing that. And yet, the scriptures tell us we, we need to do that. Now, there's a, there's a wrong way to do it, and there's a right way to do it, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. Now, uh, Luke chapter 17 and verse 3. Who's going to read that? Um, I'm Liz, and it says, So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Yeah. If your brother sins, we're supposed to take action. We're supposed to rebuke him. Why? Because we care. We care. Okay, 
James 5, 19 and 20. Um, I'm Hannah. Brothers, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. Great. So this is commending the person who goes after a straying believer, because it uses the word brother to describe that person. Okay, and in Galatians 2, 11 through 14, we're going to see about, excuse me, a pickle that Peter got himself into, and, uh, and he actually got publicly rebuked by Paul the Apostle. So, Galatians 2, 11 through 14, who's got that? Okay. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood to them. For before certain men came from... For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Mm. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Yeah, thank you, Eric. Now, Cephas is who? Peter. It's Peter. Okay, and we won't go into why we know that, but you'll, you'll find the more familiar you become with your New Testament, you'll see that that's just another name for Peter. So, Peter is hanging out with a bunch of Gentile believers. He's eating their food. He's probably saying, pass the bacon. Okay. <laughs> He's found some liberty in his, you know, his his, his uh, faith in Jesus, and yet when some some Jewish brothers come from James, meaning uh, James, probably the biological half brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the Church of Jerusalem, the guy who authored the Epistle of James, when these people came from Jerusalem to visit, Peter suddenly changed his practices. He didn't want to be scorned by them for hanging out with Gentile believers and eating their food. And then, so what does Paul do? Does he hold him accountable in private or in public? In public. Why? It's a public sin. Okay, and his sin really brought confusion on, on the body of Christ. This is an apostle, an apostolic leader, who's setting a bad example by surrendering to what the Bible calls the fear of man. Have you heard that about that text? In, in Proverbs, the fear of man brings a snare. And what is the fear of man? It's really, it's really a, a lust for human approval. And so we've got to be really careful about that. And Paul says in Galatians 1, I think it's about 13, he says, if I'm all about pleasing people, I shouldn't be even bothering with being a disciple of Jesus. I've got to be about pleasing Jesus. Now I understand it's normal to want to please people. I don't wake up in the morning thinking, who can I really take off today? Uh, but on the other hand, there's a lot of there's a lot of reason to be praying for confidence and courage, isn't there? So that we'll represent Jesus well. All right. So then, uh, did I give anybody Proverbs six? Did you have that, Eric? Six sixteen through nineteen. Yep. Yeah, I'm saying these. Oh, I'm sorry. Are, that's right. These there are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. 
Well, now this is a this is a text that'll really stretch your theology. If you're a person who doesn't only read the passages of the Bible that give you comfort. In other words, you learn that every word that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You've learned that there's nutritional value in the entirety of Scripture. In fact, a friend of mine said he was dutifully reading through Chronicles simply because of that reality, that he saw that Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he said to the Lord, Lord, I'm so frustrated. I'm just reading about you know who begat who, and it's, it's several pages. And he said, the Lord spoke to him and said, Roy, if you don't know anything else, you know that I know my people by name. So we need, to, we need to read the entirety of Scripture, but sometimes Scripture doesn't comfort you. Sometimes it afflicts you. I believe God loves to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Not original with me, it's just true. And uh, if you look at this, it says there's seven things God hates. One of them is a person who sows discord among the brothers. You say, well, I thought God loved everybody. Now, I'm just thinking out loud with you. I don't have the infallible mind. When I look, re- look at the scripture, I know in part, just like everybody else, and I look through a glass dimly, but I'm personally convinced that the people that God hates, and it says there are, I could give you six or seven Bible verses to show you that there are some people that God hates, are people that Jesus died for, that God wants in heaven. And uh, my, my guess is, if I understand scripture correctly, is these are people who have so thoroughly, so chronically uh, hardened their hearts against God. They have turned themselves over to a reprobate mind, to borrow language from Romans chapter 1, in other words, to a mind that is unprincipled morally, and then they have arrived at that place where God has hardened their hearts and where God has turned them over. I realize this may cause you some distress, and I have a very kind and sensitive word for you. Get over it. (laughs) That's just the world I live in. What can I say? Okay. Now, we're gonna we're gonna see a little bit of uh, of these texts coming up as we as we continue this this seminar. What I'm going to share with you tonight is going to be applicable in the job setting, in uh, in marriage and family relationships, uh, actually in any relationship in in churches. Conflict is an inevitable part of life. What I want you to do tonight, before you get to that part where it's fill in the blanks, is ask yourself this question. How do I generally handle conflict? And I'm going to give you four options. One, do you avoid it at all costs? Okay, number two, do you, do you vent to others about how you were mistreated and then avoid the offending party at all costs? Three, do you speak directly to the person you're in conflict with in an attempt to resolve the situation? Or four, do you launch an attack on the offending party? What do you think? And then I'd like you to, to just consider this. What would someone who knows you really well say about how you handle conflict? Because have you found out that you're not always the best judge of your own behavior? Sometimes we're really the last ones to, to see ourselves. Like my friend who started a college class at 7 a.m. in the morning, and I was there, and he came with pimple cream all over his face. And he'd gotten up late and drove to class and uh, hadn't looked at himself in the mirror. And another friend and I grabbed him and brought him into the bathroom and said, look at yourself in the mirror. And if he hadn't been pasty white, he would have turned white after looking at him. But sometimes we're the last one to see. So which is the best way? Of the four options that I gave you, 
<laughs> Which is the best way to handle conflict? And you know the answer. <laughs> that, that may be the, de the default response. I mean, that, that was my default response, uh, partly by temperament, partly by wounding. Okay. I want to read something to you from an advice columnist. Sometimes I read her. She's, she's got some interesting advice, I think. Her name is Carolyn Jacks. She writes in the Minneapolis Star Trip. She said, conflict avoidance is the emotional common cold. Just know, though, that people who don't assert themselves are essentially agreeing to live life on the terms of, of, of those around them who do. If you don't like it, then maybe it's time to find out why you're averse to speaking up and what you can do to address it. And then recently someone shared this quote with me. You get the behavior you tolerate. And I think that's, that's very, very true. Now here's where your worksheet begins. I want to help us to understand the terms. I want to define conflict and I, I want to try to clarify what constitutes a worthwhile fight. Uh, Ken Sandy, who wrote the book The Peacemaker, defines conflict as a difference of opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires, but that's too broad for me. I want to look at what constitutes what I consider a legitimate conflict, something worth fighting for, from, I want to separate that from these four things, okay? Personality issues is the first one. I remember, uh, if, if any of you have met my wife, you know that she makes me look comatose. Uh, she is, she is amazing. She's amazing, and uh, and when she gets excited, she gets really loud. And uh, in fact, our trip, our church gave us a trip to Hawaii, completely surprised us with this trip, and I was so, I was speechless, and I was very emotionally moved, but I was speechless, and Laura was crying and. And our kids, our kids have just grown up saying that. Well, Laura was at a Bible study with an elderly woman in the first church we planted many, many years ago. And this elderly woman was a very godly woman, but Laura got excited about something. And sometimes my dear wife can hit a pitch with her, with her voice that can actually hurt your ears. And uh, this gal read her the riot. Okay, this gal was really upset with her, which, which I find which I find troublesome because, because we're not talking about something that constitutes a real conflict here. If I'm going to, if I'm going to hold somebody accountable, it's not going to be because of their personality or their temperament. So we want to, we want to differentiate what constitutes a legitimate conflict or something worth fighting for from personality issues. Secondly, from style differences. Had two women in my church uh, several years ago who were both very good at organizing events. And one, I'll, I'll call her Martha. Uh, Martha ran our Alpha program, and she was amazing. She could organize events in her sleep, uh, picked the decorations, the menu, uh, put a team together, and executed the, the event with, you know, just excellence. And I had shared with Martha, you know, it would be a good idea to equip someone else to do what you're doing, because none of us is the indispensable person. That's just a philosophy in our church, including me. Uh, none of us is the indispensable person. Only Jesus is, and we want we want to learn to give away ministry. And when we see gifts in other people, we want to give them opportunities to use their gifts. So I said, I'm not saying you won't get to do this again. I'm just saying, you know, let's let's give away some some ministry. Well, she found a gal in our church. I'll call her Nancy, and uh, 
And Nancy was as gifted as she, only she did things very differently. Her decorations were very different. Her menu options were very different. The team she assembled was very different. And so then Martha kept coming back and trying to micromanage Nancy. And if you've ever been micromanaged, it's extremely disrespectful. Right? That was an amen. So, you know, and of course, I, I said, you got to stop doing that. That's very demeaning. It's, it's belittling. But my point is, they, these gals really got into a fight, just simply over style differences. So we want to be careful that we're, if we're going to get into a fight, it's a fight worth having. And then the third thing we want to separate legitimate conflict from is emotion. I have to ask myself this question, is what I perceive to be conflict just evidence of my own unresolved issues that I'm projecting onto a situation or a person? For example, we had an elderly guy in our church who was so easily offended, and, and uh, just a heads up for you, you've probably already discovered this, but maturity is not related with chronological age, right? And maturity isn't, isn't what you know, it's, it's who you are. It's who you are. Thomas Akempis, one of my favorite devotional writers, said it's more important to feel contrition than know its definition. We want, we want to become mature people, but some people, even though they're up in years, haven't, haven't grown up. Now we could say, yeah, but they're very wounded people. Well, that's true, but wounds are really not excuses to misbehave. Wounds are reasons. We say hurt people hurt people. Okay, well, somebody who's chronically hurting people... Uh, I'm sure if I learn more about them, I can find out why they're behaving that way. But frankly, as their pastor, I'm not going to let them get away with it. There's a difference between reasons for why people behave the way they behave and excuses. And this guy in my church, I'll call him Fred because that was his name. <laughs> Just kidding, it wasn't his name. He was on the team that counted the money when we received the offering. And in our church, we've, we've made a rule. We said we want at least two people to count the offering, not because we don't trust any one individual in our church, but just we, we don't want anybody to ever be able to question our integrity as a, as a congregation. And that's, that's a rule, and he knew that, but one Sunday he was counting by himself. Somebody else in the church said, you know, you're really not supposed to do that. And he completely lost it. He said, I'm out of here. You're accusing me of being dishonest? And the guy said, no, not at all. It's just that you know our policy, and we want to, we want to be above reproach in everything that we do. He said, no, you're suggesting that I'm, dis I'm dishonest. I don't need this. And he left. <laughs> and I made the mistake of going out and trying to win him back. And it was only a matter of time before he got upset about something else and left again. So we want to ask ourselves this question. What's setting us off? Is the issue really a, a, a fight worth having? Or do I just have some unresolved issues that I project onto everything else? And then, so the fourth thing is, I want to try to separate legitimate conflicts that is things worth fighting for from pettiness. And I like to ask myself this question. Is it a matter that is incidental or consequential? Back many years ago when I had hair, um, I was a youth pastor at a big church. And uh, big church, big youth group, 3,800 seats in the church. It was, uh, it was quite the place. But this church had probably the most dysfunctional youth group I've, I've ever seen. It had been neglected for a number of years. And... Uh, and then they had a bunch of militaristic parents who were forcing their kids to, to come to everything at church. And this church had stuff going on almost seven nights a week. And there was a, when I got there, I found out that there was a big war going on between the kids in my youth group and their parents over what kind of music the kids were listening to. Now, probably to your surprise, the kids weren't listening to secular music. 
kids were listening to Christian music, but their, but their parents didn't approve of it. They were listening to bands. I don't know if any of these bands are still around, but Striper, yeah. Madeline Lefebvre, and Broken Heart, Petra. Okay. Any of you remember Striper? They were skinny guys with their leotards, right? Out of makeup. Okay. And I asked the parents, I said, what is the problem? And the problem, according to the parents, was they kept saying that sick, syncopated beat. Now, I didn't know what a syncopated beat was. But uh, here's my philosophy. I don't believe there's any such thing in life as Christian music. I think there's only Christian lyrics. If, you're, if you grew up in a Lutheran heritage, you know the song of Mighty Fortress is our God. And some of you may know where Martin Luther got the tune. He got it in a tavern when he was having a beer. And he said, why should the devil have all the good music? And he just simply wrote the lyrics to that song. So I personally am of the opinion there's no such thing as Christian music, just Christian lyrics. And the lyrics of these songs were actually great. And I remember saying to the parents, please don't do this. And uh, their response to me was, what do you know? And I said, not a whole lot. And uh, their question also, the follow-up question was, uh, well, how old are your kids? And they know the age of my kids because my oldest was five and a half and our fourth child was a newborn. So you don't have any teenagers. No, I don't, but I can tell you that you're making a mistake. And I remember begging them, would you at least please let your child listen to this music for a period of six months. I said, what, what would happen if you wrote a contract and you said, I'm going to let you listen to this for six months. During this time, I will pray about this music. You can pray about this music. And then let's come back and, and visit over this. You see, Josh McDowell, some of you may be familiar with Josh, back then he was doing a lot of teaching on how to parent teenagers. And I remember something he said, and I shared it with these parents, which they didn't receive. I don't remember one single parent in this rather large church who was receptive to this. He said, parents, before you get embroiled in an unnecessary conflict or in what you think is a necessary conflict with your child, ask yourself this question. Is the issue what he calls a poisonous snake? In other words, is it lethal? Is it something that would really damage them spiritually? Or is it just a matter of taste? Thomas Jefferson said this. He said, in matters of taste, float with the waves. In matters of principle, stand like the rock. See, we have to do a little discerning. Is, was that a worthwhile conflict? Was that a fight worth having? Not in my opinion, but in their opinion. And i got to tell you, sadly, I'm not glad to report that every one of those parents lost their relationship with their teen. Now, I don't think they lost it permanently uh, past 10 years, but i got to tell you, there was such resentment because they were confiscating their kids' tapes. Back then it was tapes, not CDs. <laughs> they were confiscating the tapes and destroying them. And I said, what an unnecessary conflict. Of course, I didn't know anything because my kids were so little. <laughs> so now I want to talk a little bit about understanding resolution. And uh, you probably have this in your notes. We need to do a little preliminary work. When you've just determined that there is a fight worth having, and uh, this is a legitimate conflict, it's not any of these other four things I've talked about, you have to start by asking yourself, what's my ideal solution? What, what would I really like to have happen. And the second thing is, on a realistic basis, what can I hope for? But even when I say that, I want to I wanna be careful to add this warning. Don't underestimate either God or the person you're dealing with. God will surprise you and so will people. People will sometimes surprise you at their willingness to look again at an issue. And the third question is, can you live with your answer to number two? 
But what is that all about? It's about counting the cost because there is some risk involved in, uh, in addressing conflict. So here's some steps. Now, how, how is everybody doing? We doing okay? You need to stretch it all? Okay. I, I, I heard from a professor many years ago, a Frenchman. Uh, he actually was one of the guys who helped start Willow Creek. He, uh, we had this class at night. We took 14 weeks and three weeks. And it was uh, four nights a week for four hours. He said, oh, I will let you out uh, early tonight because the uh, brain cannot absorb, but the seat cannot endure. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you need to get up, that's okay. So here's some steps. I'm going to give several steps. The first is this. When you've decided that something is a legitimate fight worth having, ask yourself, am I open to the possibility that my perception of things is wrong? Because if you don't think you can be wrong, you're arrogant. And when you're arrogant, you can't hear God. Because God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And uh, I want to tell you the most important thing I can leave with you tonight when it comes to Christians in conflict. For Christians in conflict, the most important thing that you need to get right is how to behave. It's not who's right and who's wrong. In fact, I was helping a church in Texas that has a pretty nasty conflict going on. They have a, an interim pastor who wants the job of senior pastor so bad that he's, he's divided the church over the issue. And the elders who really have the authority to fire him feel like they have a prophetic word not to fire him, but not to fire him, but they're asking him to, to stop behaving this way. Pretty nasty. Mm -hmm. He thinks his perception's accurate. Can't possibly be wrong. It's scary. When you feel that way, you're already wrong. Daniel Borston was a librarian of Congress, and he died a few years ago. He said the greatest obstacle to discovery is not ignorance. It's the illusion of knowledge. Really thinking you know. 1 Corinthians 8, 2, one of my favorite Bible verses. It says, let the person who thinks he knows realize he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. So, you know, you know what the Bible says about the wisdom that comes down from above? And it, and it says it's, it's reasonable, right? A person who can't be reasoned with is not under the influence of the wisdom of God. So, that's the first step. Are you open to the possibility your perception is wrong? The second step, do you have all the facts? I want to tell you a little story. A guy named Roger, he's given the, the uh, label of criminal sexual offender after being found guilty of a, of a sexual offense. He served his sentence. He's now being released. The community he's being released into sees his label, his label that he's either a rapist or a pedophile, but here's the circumstances. When he was 18 and his girlfriend was uh, 15, they were found to be having consensual sex. Now, moral issue and also a legal issue. Not, certainly not right behavior, but her parents found out, called the police. He was arrested with the charge of statutory rape. He was convicted, sent to prison. He's getting released. He's not a pedophile. It was consensual. Still, still wrong. They're, they're not married. However, he's not what people think he is. Be very careful. If you ask yourself the question, do I have all the facts, here's the answer all the time. Rarely. Rarely. Have any of you read the book Twice Pardoned by Harold Morris? 
Harold Morris was a guy, when he was 19, he went to a party to hang out with some friends, and uh, he wasn't a follower of Jesus, and he met some people there that seemed like they'd be fun to hang out with, and they said, hey, why don't you meet us tomorrow night? We're going to be front, in front of uh, coming out of this liquor store about 10 o'clock. We'll go party. Uh, just, just meet us there in your car. Okay, sure, so, sounds good. So at 10 o'clock the next night, he was waiting in front of the liquor store. What he didn't know was these two guys were holding up the liquor store. They ended up shooting the clerk and killing the clerk. Harold didn't know he was the unsuspecting driver of the getaway car. They got caught. These two guys conspired together, told the cops the same story, said that Harold's the ringleader. Harold got a life sentence. These two guys got off. Okay, not without going to prison. They, they, they served a very little bit of time. But Harold got a life sentence. Now, he's, he's got an amazing story. He gets to find Jesus in prison. He gets a real pardon from God. And then God performs a miracle and he gets a, a pardon because the truth eventually comes out. But you know what people thought of him? He's a murderer. He made a bad choice about who he hung out with, but he's not the person people thought he was. So be very careful that you don't jump to conclusions. That's the only exercise some of us get. Okay. Okay, I'm sorry it was lame. You know why you can't tell Norwegians jokes on uh, Saturday night? They'll get the punchline in church on Sunday morning. Okay, uh, number three. Number three, and there's some overlap here with some of the other things I, I said. Are you approaching the conflict from emotion or reason? I will tell you that almost 100% of the time that I've been emotionally charged up, whether I'm going to address an issue with my wife or one of my kids or somebody in my church, almost 100% of the time, I make a big mess. And I end up saying to myself and others, that was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. What can I do to make this right? So be very, very careful. And uh, if you've got the kind of temperament that makes it easy for you to behave that way, uh, really cry out to God for some help and get some healing for your wounds. Because uh, ill-tempered people are usually people who've got some unhealed wounds. And again, a reason, not an excuse. Uh, number four, seek counsel, not support for your view. From a person who has these two character traits. A, they have a track record of objectivity. And B, they're not emotionally affected by the issue. I found that if I'm in a conflict with someone, I can always find somebody who will just say, you're right, they're dirty, rotten scoundrels, they'll jump down into that nasty hole with me, and we'll just get ourselves all riled up. Or, I can go to the person I usually don't really want to go to, and say, uh, what do you think about this? Because this is the person who's got the character to say, i got to tell you, I think you're the problem. That's that's the kind of person you really want in your corner. You see, we all need people to coach us, don't we? You know, and you know what I found out about the world's greatest athletes? I don't care if it's Michelle Wee, the, the golfer, or the greatest uh, tennis player in the world. The greatest athletes in the world today, and this has always been true, they all have a coach. Every one of them. They could probably beat the pants off their coach in competition. But these coaches are people who've proven that they can see things that they themselves cannot see. So we need to have people in our lives that we trust. People who have the kind of character to say, I'm not seeing it that way. Okay, 
And then uh, number five, count the cost. What's going to happen if you address the issue? What's going to happen if you don't? Now, uh, that big church that I was a part of where the youth group was all goofy, um, my pastor was one of the best preachers on the planet. He, my, my lead pastor, one of the, I mean, in his denomination, he was known nationally as an outstanding preacher, and he was. And he was amazing at leading a church to making wise decisions financially. I mean, they built this almost 4,000-seat place without borrowing money, except they did end up borrowing a little bit to get some furnishings for it. But imagine. He had five kids. Three three of them were in my youth group. And they resented. They resented their dad. And I couldn't blame them. He was so militaristic. He got them up at the crack of dawn. I mean, he really literally cracked the whip with figuratively, excuse me, cracked the whip with them for daily devotions. And I mean, these kids were falling asleep. They had to be at every event that was going on at the church. If they were involved in sports, he said, if you're late, we're leaving for church at 6.15 tonight. If you're late, if you're one minute late, the car won't be here, and you better not be late to tonight's events. Now, the church was on the south end of the city we were living in. Their house was on the north end. It was about 12 miles. And I remember one of the boys who was a swimmer got home late from practice, and he ran the 12 miles to church because he didn't want to be in trouble with his dad. And I remember others, I was one of six pastors there, other pastors on the staff saying to me, you know, uh, have you seen how this family is getting along? I said, yeah. And he said, it's really bad. You know, you're the new kid on the block, but we're, we've seen this for years. And I said, well, have you talked to him? Oh, goodness, no. I said, well, then you don't need to be talking to me. You need to be talking to him. And wouldn't that be something that would be really helpful? I mean, you're his brothers in Christ, and you have a relationship with him. And they wouldn't do it. And I remember talking to my, my biological half-brother, Wally, who was a mentor in my life. And I just said, what, what do I do? You know, I mean, this is so sad to me. And uh, he said, well, what do you think you ought to, ought to do? And I said, I think I need to talk to him. And I scheduled a, a meeting with my boss, and I said, you know, I, I don't know how to say this. Obviously, I don't have teenagers. But I can tell you what I'm seeing, and I'm really afraid you're going to lose your kids. And he listened very politely. But after that, our relationship completely changed. Uh, he began to demonstrate very passive-aggressive behavior toward me. It became very clear that he didn't want me on his staff anymore. I was uh, one of the worship leaders there, and... Uh, and he made the, the, the worship rotation, and suddenly I was not in the ro- worship rotation. Of the six pastors, uh, we had a couple hundred men that, uh, on our men's retreat, and we all were given, everybody was given a teaching assignment except me, and which, which was fine if that's what he wanted, but I thought there was something more to this. It wasn't passing the smell test, as Dr. Phil would say. <laughs> so I went back. I said, I just have to ask you. I said, uh, I'm just wondering if the changes... <laughs> Are, uh, are a reflection of the meeting we had. And he said, what changes? I said, well, um, I'm not in the worship rotation for one thing. He said, you're not. I said, well, I would think you know you make the worship rotation. Um, and I said, I, I was the only one of us not given an assignment at the uh, men's retreat. And, you know, that's your call. But just wondering if this is related. Oh, goodness, no, no. I said, so I can expect to be put in, uh, back in the worship rotation? Oh, sure. Now, it never was. There were other signs. I went back to him again. 
and it was the same kind of passive-aggressive stuff, denials. And this man, as I said, he was a great preacher. Not a good preacher, great preacher. Church grew, okay? Uh, the church was healthy financially. Today, it's doubtful whether that church never, ever needs to receive another offering. They've got so much property and received so much from investment income. It's just incredible. But he could not communicate directly with members of his own staff. Now, it cost me to go to him. But I had to answer to someone that was more important to me, and that's Jesus. And so I eventually went back again, and I said, just so you know, I said, the message is, is really loud. And uh, I won't create any trouble for you, and I'm, I'm going to resign. And I could see that he was very happy about that. And I said, that's okay. It's just that uh, I'm sorry it had to, had to end this way. You have to decide, is it worth it? But would it please God? Yes, it might cost you something. Uh, a job's never been that important to me. Uh, because no matter what I'm doing, if I've been uh, in construction, which I've done for a number of years as a church planter, and uh, done vocational ministry for a number of years, it really doesn't matter to me as long as I'm pleasing Jesus. Does this make sense? Okay. Number six. Accept respons responsibility for your contribution to the conflict. And uh, here are a couple of other points that I think are pretty important. A, there are no innocent parties. And B, the other party's guilt does not absolve you of yours. Uh, I've, I've found couples in conflict where I personally would say, looks like this, this partner in the marriage relationship bears about 95% of the responsibility, and this person I'd say is 5%, but actually I haven't found any innocent parties. Even in a marriage where my wife and I were very good friends with a couple who ended up getting divorced and she was unfaithful to him, I have to say, uh, he was such a bozo in, in this situation. He, he had been neglecting his wife for years. There were plenty of other guys around who were paying attention to her. Again, reasons, not excuses. We knew she was vulnerable. Uh, she'd said as much to us. And we said to her during this very painful situation, this very unfulfilling marriage, Jesus wants you to know that he is more than enough to meet every need you have. Now listen, if Corey Ten Boom could find out in the Second World War in a Nazi concentration camp that there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still, can we find out that Jesus Christ is fulfilling in an unfulfilling relationship, so much so that we never give ourselves permission to go out and look for counterfeit gratification? Do you agree with that? Yeah. And do you know that Jesus wants to show you He's more than enough? He's more than enough. And so I want you to know, even though she made a bad choice, and now many years later, she's had two more marriages that followed that, and she knows, I blew it, it was stupid, it was foolish, it was self-indulgent, I didn't turn to Jesus. That husband goes around their little rural town, I don't know if he's still doing this, but he was doing this for quite a while after she left him for another man, and acted like he was lily white. And he was not a contributor. And I remember him coming and spending a night at my house in the Twin Cities. And I said to you, I'm not going to listen to this crap. Because that's what it is. You are not pleasing Jesus. I talked to you for several years before this happened. Certainly she made a bad decision. She made a, a sinful decision. She has to live with it. She's owned up to that. Have you owned up to your contributions? 
and you've got a boatload of them. And I got to tell you, I was tempted to crack this guy in the chops. I was praying, help me Jesus, because I want to hurt this guy. He's being such a moron. <laughs> so, sorry I didn't, I didn't pass the pastoral sensitivity class. <laughs> okay, how are we doing for time? About five minutes. Five minutes, okay. Um, so, we're not going to get through this, which is just fine. Because there's, there's, uh, I can give you these full-blown notes. What we want to do, number seven, okay? Discrete confrontation. I want to tell you, you can confront without being combative. I just, I just uh, heard this statement by a guy named uh, Eric Hoffer. Rudeness is the weak man's imitation of strength. I want to, I want to share with you some things you can actually do to assist you in communicating in a way that hopefully will will honor Jesus. And sometimes strong language is a part of that, by the way. I, I, I you know, if you just took all of the, the hard sayings of Jesus, like get behind me, Satan, to his chief follower, the, the number one man on the staff, get behind me, Satan. I mean, how far would your pastor get if he was overheard saying that to his chief assistant? Okay? And yet we think, oh, you know, you shouldn't talk that way to people in the church. What Bible you been reading? You know, I, I found that when people are in denial, when people are, I don't mean we need to be vulgar. If you think I've been vulgar, then I guess I need to look at that issue. Other than, and I'll have to apologize. But I'm telling you, when people are in denial about something stupid they're doing, and the Bible uses words like stupid. Read the book of Proverbs. It talks about people who are stupid. Okay? When people are doing stupid, and they're in denial, and they're justifying it, guess what? They need a heavy hand. They don't need the warm fuzzies of grace. They need the strong hand of the law. Do you agree? Yes. Who did Jesus give the law to? He didn't give grace and warm fuzzies to the self-righteous, unrepentant Pharisees. Right? He hit them pretty hard. He called them all kinds of naughty names. And they understood them. Okay. Here's the first thing. But I digress. Uh, a. Go to the source. Go to the source. I'll probably, I might have to close with this. Um, Maybe, God bless you, maybe 10 years or so ago, I just joined the staff of a, of, of a different church. And uh, it was a Wednesday night. A lot of activities on our, in our church on Wednesday night. Uh, office area is fairly good size. Maybe a little bit bigger than this this room. And maybe eight or nine people milling around after all the stuff had gone on. And uh, a gal comes in, same gal as from another story. She's just been so useful uh, for illustrative purposes. Uh, it's Martha. God bless her. Uh, Martha comes in and is furious and is saying to everybody in the office and especially to Barb, one of our pastors, uh, I will never work with Nancy again. Then she goes off on Nancy, who's not around. And Barb pulls out her day planner and says, Have you talked to, uh, have you talked to Nancy? Well, no. And I don't think I'm going to. And Barb turned the page and took out her pen, wrote herself a note. She said, a week from today, I'm going to call Nancy. And I'm going to find out if you've spoken to her. And if you haven't, I'm going to be at your doorstep with Nancy. Because guess what? You don't get to do this. This is sinful. It's sick. It's wrong. It's naughty. It doesn't please Jesus. And stop it! And I, I remember, and this gal said, you're so right. I'm so sorry. And, uh, which was not a bad response, right? 
I literally got down and kissed her, kissed Barb's shoes. <laughs> Though Barb was a woman, she had gonads. <laughs> that a lot of men don't have. That a lot of pastors don't have. That's all right, Paul's not here yet. We can say this stuff. Hey, you here, Paul? <laughs> there he is. Okay. Now, I said I've never seen anybody handle this better. I said I've never seen anybody handle this better, Barb. You are amazing. You are world class. God bless you. She did that with everybody. Now, here's what I found out. I found out if people will gossip to you about someone, they will gossip about you to someone. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to be careful about not just gossiping, but listening. Because if you're listening, you're complicit. You're like the getaway driver. And, uh, and I'm going to close with this. Ask yourself if you feel like you need to gossip. First of all, I think gossip is, the, uh, is a sin that is just allowed and enabled and... We need to stop it. We need to stop gossiping and stop permitting it to happen and behave like Barb. I read an article in the Star Tribune some time ago about a guy who's a part of the University of Virginia who's actually providing training for the corporate culture that are interested in creating gossip-free zones. And he's teaching his clients to ask these questions, okay? He says, ask, is it true? And, and number two, is it harmless? And number three, would I say the same thing to the person's face? And again, if this is too fast for you, I'll send you these notes. But is it true? Is it harmless? Would I say the same thing to the person's face? Number four, would I be okay seeing my words quoted in tomorrow's newspaper? If you can't answer yes to all of the above, resist. Now, there's more steps here. I can send you those notes. So maybe what I'll do is I'll send the full-blown notes Excuse me, to Paul or whomever you want me to send them to. It'll be in the update tomorrow or Thursday, Kevin. Okay, so then you'll you'll have all this stuff. You'll have all these little quotes and everything. But let's just stop there because there's... The quote you just gave a moment ago. Rudeness is the weak man's imitation of strength? Okay, well, uh, there's, there's, there's too much more for us to take any more time tonight. But here's the deal. Unfortunately, conflict happens among Christians and and most of it's unnecessary the the things that Christians will typically fight over is it really it really saddens me because these are things that I don't consider hills worth dying on but you can be a person who lives by the words of the Apostle Paul you're diligent to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace and that's why I said the most important thing you can take away from this tonight is the fact that what's really important is not sorting out who's right and who's wrong, whether this is in a marriage or in a family situation or in a church, but how must I behave? You see, immature people want to, who's right? But you remember Joshua saw the angel of the Lord when he was entering the, the land of promise and he said to him, whose side are you on? You on their side or our side? And the angel said, neither. I'm here as the captain of the hosts of the Lord's army. So we need to be more careful with how we behave than sorting through the rights and wrongs. Because the truth, truth is, if you behave in a way that honors Jesus, he'll sort through 
the nonsense. And there's a great Proverbs, we'll quote, uh, close with this, Proverbs 26, 20, where there's no wood, there the fire goes out. So also, where there's no gossiper, contention will cease. Okay, let's pray. Father, uh, thanks for the Communitas family. Thanks for what you want to do in us and through us. Would you help us to be uh, super duper at protecting the unity of your beloved and beautiful bride? Would you forgive us for the times and the ways we've, we've uh, yielded to gossip and slander? I know I have, uh, and I'm sorry. Would you cleanse us and wash us and purify us? And uh, would you help us to be people who protect that unity? And, uh, and help us to be people who are concerned, first and foremost, with behaving in a way that honors you and pleases you. And we give you the glory, and we give you the praise. And God's people said, Amen. 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 God bless you.